This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. What if the success of your business is not about the products you offer, even if you have great products? What is the real secret to success in business, and how do you leverage that secret for the benefit of your company and the employees? That's what we're talking about today and with my special guest, so let me tell you about him. Mr. Howard Bihar, his career spans in business over 50 years all in consumer-oriented businesses covering several industries. He retired from Starbucks Coffee after 21 years, where he first led the domestic business as president of North America, then was the founding president of Starbucks International, and he served on the board of directors for 12 years prior to retiring. During his tenure, he participated in the growth of the company from 28 stores to over 15,000 stores spanning five continents. Mr. Howard Bihar also served as a member of the board for many other organizations to include GAP, SureGuard, University of Washington Foundation, and ID Tech. He is currently a trustee for the Sherry and Les Biller Family Foundation and is on the advisory board of Anthos Capital. A longtime advocate, of the servant leadership model. He is committed to the development and education of our future leaders and has authored two books, It's Not About the Coffee and The Magic Cup. Howard, welcome to The Voice of Leadership and to Dr. Karen Speaks Leadership. Dr. Karen, thanks for having me. It's a delight to have you here on the show. I'm so excited because I know that you have lots of words of wisdom to share with my community. And the first thing I want to start with, Howard, is, so if success is not about the product, then what is the secret sauce? The secret sauce is the people. The minute you start, uh, you hire one person to help you in your company or your organization, it's no longer about the product or service that you're selling. Now it's about the people. And that's the key. And been the, that's been the foundation of Starbucks success is our focus on people, on the well-being of our people, helping our people First, grow as human beings, then secondly, grow as professionals, and third, helping our people achieve the goals and the objectives in their own personal lives. I think that's phenomenal. So, Howard, tell us some specific examples. What are some specific ways that you helped people to grow in their lives or in their professions when they were at Starbucks? Well, we had a program called Star Skills. And Star Skills was not a training program because I think you train and educate, or you train pets, you, ed- you educate and develop people. So this was an education and development program that focused on how people work together, how you achieve your own personal goals. And it was a kind of program that you could take home and use just as much as you'd use it at work. And it enabled our people to understand each other, to work together better, and to achieve the goals of the organization better. That's just one of the things, you know, we also understood that everybody needed to be treated with respect and dignity. And that was our first guiding principle. 
And so we are always focused on that. We never purposely defined it because everybody has a different idea of what that means. And so you have to be willing to manage your relationships to the individual, not just to the organ, the greater organization, because people want to know that you care about them individually, not just caring about the organization. So those are two really key things, I think, in building uh, a high performance organization. You know, you said several things I think are really important to just sort of double down on. One, the individualization of the caring about people, customizing it, if you will, to what's important for each person. You also talked about offering development experiences that not only benefited them at work, but also benefited them on the home front. And so it's all about getting along with other people, working as a team, from what I hear you saying. And and the bottom, bottom line is, if you really want to be successful, you have to be willing to invest in your people is what I'm hearing you talk about. Absolutely. You grow the people, the people grow the organization, and the organization grows the business. Amen to that. That's phenomenal. So when you joined Starbucks in about 1989, the company was 18 years old. There were 28 stores and Howard Schultz had already bought out the founders of the company. So why were they hiring you? What was to be your role when you came in? Well, it was to be uh, head of operations for the company. Howard didn't have any experience in doing that. And he was a a young guy that had never really run a company before. And so he was looking for some gray hairs that had operational experience. And at that time, I had a little gray hair and a little more hair than I have now. So he brought me in to help him out and to help the organization grow. Little did he know what I would be focusing on. He probably didn't understand it at first, but then on the back end, he probably was glad that you brought this new perspective into the business. Let me mention something. I know that there were three of you that were key people in the business that you end up referring to as H2O. So tell us about H2O. Well, two Howards and an Orrin. There aren't very many Howards in the world right now, but there happened to be, actually at one time there were three Howards at Starbucks, which made it hard to people to refer which Howard it was. I was HB, Howard Schultz was HS, and there was an HW. So Howard brought me in to run operations, and then he recruited a man named Oren Smith who came in to be the CFO. And the three of us together uh, was like a great basketball team. We always knew where each other was on the court. And we used to meet together every Monday night over dinner, talk about our week, what was good, what wasn't so good. We'd cry together, we'd laugh together, but we were a team. And that team, everybody understood that we were a team and that we cared about each other first and that we cared about the people that were working in the organization. So H2O. I love that because water is essential to life, right? Right. (laughs) So, So there was some sense in which you guys brought essential elements. And I also want to highlight the fact that you were different from each other. You were not all the same. It, it wasn't a case of hiring in your own image, so to speak, you know, from the perspective of Howard Schultz. A lot of times leaders are afraid to bring in people who are different. So talk about that a little bit and explain how, even if you might fuss a little bit or whatever, that it somehow works out. Howard and I, uh, we shared some commonalities, both Jewish uh, Howard, although came from a very poor family, raised outside of New York City in Canarsie and never had much growing up. I came from a kind of a lower middle class family. My parents were immigrants, had a small mom and pop grocery store. We always had food on the table and clothes on our back. 
And Lauren came from a single mother head of household, father that was an alcoholic and left the family when, when the family was early on. There were some core values that we kind of all shared. None of us came from wealth. We all came to the company saying that we wanted to build this organization, not on the backs of people, but with people. Howard and I were different in some sense. I, I was really ferocious about the people, about how we treated people. And Howard and I would get in these blowout arguments. I mean, you know, sometimes I wonder why he didn't fire me in the early days, but he didn't. You know, he was willing to let me fly and he let me operate the business. We called Warren the tortoise because you could go into Warren's office and you'd sit there and, and talk to Warren about what you were thinking about, what you want to do. Warren would never say a word. And a week later, he'd come back to you and say, yeah, you know that what we talked about? That's, you know, I agree with that. That was just kind of Warren. Warren was always the peacemaker. When Howard and I would get into these blowouts, Warren stepped in and said, okay, boys, calm down. So we're all three a little different, but, but we had some common values, particularly about what we wanted to do with people. I really love that. The fact that, you know, as long as you have a common core at the values level, you can be different in a lot of other ways in terms of personality or giftings in terms of what your emphasis is. And I know that you were definitely the people person. And it sounds like uh, Howard Schultz might have been more of a the coffee guy in a sense. He was the entrepreneur. Howard was that guy that if he heard the word no, that was the beginning of the conversation. You know, if he came into my office and said, I got this great idea, I want to do X, Y, and Z. And I said, yeah, I don't know. He would start going around the office, around the building till he found somebody that would say, yeah, that's a great idea. Then he'd come back to my office and say, see, somebody else likes it. You're wrong. And, you know, so that, you know, it was the way we kind of operated. But it worked. And at the end of the day, we loved each other as human beings first. And then as, you know, people that worked in a company together second. Yeah, it's wonderful to be able to see when you put your skills together and your abilities together, you get more than if either one of you had tried to do it alone. So that's a beautiful example of respecting each other and loving each other, as you said. I know the beginning was not uh, just, okay, you know, Howard Bihar, we're ready for you to come into Starbucks. It took about a year for this courtship to really emerge into you showing up at Starbucks. So tell us that story, because sometimes people give up kind of quick when maybe they might need to persist. Well, I had been president of a land development company in Seattle, and I actually got, I got fired from that company because I grew a beard. It was my protest beard, and the company didn't like the beard, and so... They let me go for a couple other reasons, too, because the company had been bought. But so I was out trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. And I said, I'm not going to go to work for anybody anymore. I want to buy my own company or build my own company. So I started looking for companies to buy. And along the way, I met this young guy, Howard Schultz, who was looking for this vice president of operation. And we had breakfast one morning and and he was explaining what he needed, what he wanted. And he had 10 items on his list of criteria. Number one, you had to have a college degree. I didn't have that. Number two, you had to have food service background. I didn't have that. Finally, we got to number 10, can I breathe? That was about the only thing that I passed on the list. So we shook hands and parted company. And about a year passed, and I finally found a business to buy. And it was actually a franchise business company. And interestingly enough, one of Howard's kind of co-workers, a guy that was one of his first investors when he bought Starbucks, was an expert in franchising. And so I went to visit him. And while we were visiting him, 
he said to me, why do you want to buy that? We need a guy like you right here at Starbucks. You'd be a perfect fit. So I explained, I'd already been through the, you know, the conversation with Howard. Yeah, he said, but things change. You know, I want you to talk to Howard again. And so I said, okay, I will. And, uh, but I had no intention of going to work for somebody else. And so Howard and I met and I said to Howard, I said, Howard, can I work in the company for a week? I'll do it for free. I'd like to work in the trucks. I'd like to work in the stores. And I'd like to work in the plant. And he said, yeah, that's kind of interesting. And I said, you can look at me. I'll look at you and we'll see where this heads. So I did that. After the week went by, I was energized. I thought this is a perfect place for me because I recognized early on, even though the company hadn't recognized it, that this wasn't about coffee, that it was about people. And so Howard fortunately extended an invitation for me to join Starbucks. And, you know, the rest kind of became history. I turned right instead of turning left. I love that story, Howard. I think it's phenomenal. And it speaks to thinking about things with a long range view and thinking about life with the long game. I mean, there's even a brief story in my own history where when I was living in Germany and I was thinking about what am I going to do over here? And I went down to the local hospital in Frankfurt and volunteered to work there for a while. And then I was ultimately hired. So doing something like what you described, it works. And then people get a they get a sense of who you are. They get a sense of what you can do. And then they start wanting some of that as well. So, so I love that. Yeah, sometimes people just give up quickly and they don't think of creative ways, you know, to make a difference and to show how they can add value. So thank you for sharing that story. You mentioned something about getting fired. Let's talk about that a little bit, too, because I know at least in one of the cases where either you quit or got fired, I don't remember which, was because uh, someone senior to you spoke to you in a way that was kind of disrespectful. Tell us about that. I was working for a big box furniture company that was uh, a division of federated department stores. And I had a boss that would come in every morning and say, hi, a dummy, how you doing? He thought he was being funny, but he wasn't funny. And one day he came in, he said that to me, and I got out of my chair. This, his name was Erwin Greenwald. He's long since passed away, but he was about six foot four, and I'm about five nine. So he towered above me, and I got up in front and stretched my neck up, and I said, Erwin, don't you ever, I said a swear word, don't you ever say that to me again. I am not a dummy. Well, you know, it didn't go over real well with Erwin, and three weeks later, he fired me. You know, I always believe you got to be willing to bet your job every day for what you believe in. And that went against how I felt about myself and what my values were. You didn't say that to people, even if it was in jest, because people don't assume it's always in jest. You know, sometimes jokes are, you know, have more reality to the person that it's, is saying them. So, you know, you got to be willing to get fired for the things that you believe in. And I have always been willing to do that. I've been fired four times, actually, in my life. From different things uh, you know one from the company that i was the president of and it got sold and they wanted somebody new in the job and i i grew a beard to help them make that decision and then erwin letting me go and then uh one time even my own brother-in-law fired me from the furniture business and then i was a board member for a large multinational company and i got let go i wasn't the only one but they were shrinking the board but it hurts you know i'm not going to sit here and tell you that it that you feel kind of rejected, even even if you wanted to be. But you got to be able to deal with that and move on with your life because that's part of life. Disappointment is part of life. 
Well, it certainly didn't stop you in your career trajectory. You went on to do even greater things all along the way. So say a little bit more about how you leveraged those firing experiences, I'll say, for your benefit rather than to have it drag you down. Well, pretty much all of it was about values. Pretty much every reason why I was gone were a values conflict. And so I, you know, what happens when you have that conflict, you're not a happy person. You know, you're going home at night saying, God, is this really the place I want to be? I just wasn't aligned and they weren't aligned with me. And so that made a difference in my life. And I, I didn't want to be there. I wanted a place where I could be productive, where I could be fulfilled. And, you know, I hate to use the word happy because happiness is kind of an interesting word. It's kind of fleeting. I was leading a fulfilling life which happiness was a part of. So, but the most important part for me was I need to work in a place that I shared common values with. And I need to work with people where we had common values. It didn't have to be the same, exactly the same. They didn't have to match perfectly, but I had to be aligned with the greater purpose of the organization and the leadership of the organization. Because when that doesn't happen, when that doesn't work, then it's hard to be productive. Absolutely. Those two things you mentioned about the values piece, and also being respected at work. And sometimes in today's workforce, people are working in places where they're not feeling respected, maybe where there's not a values alignment. And you said, be willing to bet your job every day. So what's the practical part of that? Somebody is, you're mentoring someone, they're a young leader, they're afraid actually to get fired. So what do you tell them? How do you advise them to be ready to bet their job every day? Well, I say, first of all, save 10% of everything you earn. Put it in the bank so that no matter what happens in your life, you can live for six months at least without having to worry. Because if you're worried about not being able to eat or pay your rent or whatever it is that you need to pay with you or your family, then fear takes over. And all of a sudden, fear becomes the driving force. And you don't want that to be the driving force. You want your values to be the driving force. And so... That's, I think, a critical piece. And, you know, there's an old saying, any path will get you there if you don't know where you're going. And so you got to be clear about where you want to go in your life. That needs to fit. And you have to evaluate that with where you are at that particular point in time. Now, I don't advocate for everybody tomorrow morning to go quit their job. It's not my point. You know, you try to work things out and you try to find alignment first and you try to find why this is a good place to be. But sometimes you can just see that it's not the right place. You know it in your heart. Then you don't want to stay in a place like that. You want to be in a place that, you know, respects you, that gives you an opportunity to take on challenges, to grow, to learn. You know, that's where you want to be, in a place that you really align with the greater purpose and the values of the organization. Yeah, I think that's important because if you're in a place where there's not the values alignment, first of all, it's draining to your own soul and spirit, and you're not able to contribute at the highest level of value to that organization when there's really that disconnect. So it can be worth it, as I say, to jump off from the trapeze, fly through the air and know that you're going to grab the rung of the next trapeze along the way. And that takes some faith. It takes some faith that, you know, things will work out ultimately. As Ray Kroc used to say, turn your fear into faith. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) That's what you have to do. You got to believe that you can always put food on the table. 
right? That that's not going to be the issue. You can always find something to do. Work at Starbucks as a barista, work at McDonald's, whatever it is. Find a way to put food on the table, if, even if it's temporary. You got to be willing to take the risks. I think that's a key and a secret to leadership, being willing to take the risk along the way. You know, you also say that the leader doesn't have to have all the answers. So what really is the role of the leader? What is the leader supposed to do in an organization that's really going to be beneficial? Primary responsibility of a, of a leader is to grow the people both personally and professionally. And like I said before, and help their people achieve their goals. Those are the three primary responsibilities of any leadership role. If you get those right, then your people want to help. Then they want to be part of the organization. They want to accomplish. You don't have to push them. They're already there because they know that you care about them. You know, there was a young guy that I work with at Starbucks. And a couple of weeks ago, he was doing a podcast and he gave a quote. He said, I always knew that Howard loved me because he told me. Right? You have to tell your people that you love them and that you care about them. It's not enough just to assume that they know. You actually have to do it. And so, you know, that makes a difference. And you know, it's, it's, it's how organizations work, but leaders are not there to do their people's jobs. They're to help their people do their jobs. Give them the coaching when they need it and, and the helping hand when they need it. You know, leaders don't need to have the answers. As a matter of fact, I, I never saw myself as the answer guy. Howard Schultz was a lot more creative than I was. I always thought I was the alchemist. I would go to my people, baristas, I don't care who it was. And I, if I had a, a question, I would ask them. I'd say, what do you like about Starbucks? What don't you like about Starbucks? What would you change about Starbucks? Or here's a problem that I have. What do you think? What would be your solution to this problem? It's amazing how people will come and they'll say, hey, here's some ideas about that. They want to contribute. And it lets them know that you truly respect them. Like I always say, the person who sweeps the floor should choose the broom. When you hire great people to do the job, you know, let them choose the broom to sweep the floor. You don't need to choose it for them. So basically, leadership is really not a whole lot about control. It's about facilitating the success and, in a sense, almost unburdening people from hurdles and obstacles so that they can bring their their best ideas and their best selves forward in the workplace. It's amazing. You know, there's an old saying that people, leaders always say, people are our most important asset. When I hear that word, I know that they don't get it because people are not assets. Assets are trucks, computers, buildings. Pretty much assets always give you what you expect. People never give you what you expect, more or less, whatever it is on this continuum. And you've got to be able to deal with those things as a leader. There's another saying people, leaders might say, we're going to get along fine just as long as you don't surprise me in anything. Well, really? If all of a sudden one of your people comes with a sales order that you didn't expect for a million dollars, right? That's a surprise. We just don't like the other side of that. We don't like when there's a mistake made and we have to deal with that. But you only get the good when you deal with the bad effectively. Exactly. Absolutely. So, Howard, I know that while you were at Starbucks, you were at the forefront of a lot of innovations. And they weren't always easy to bring to bear. So tell us some stories about some of the innovations that you started, the other people who were involved, and what were some of the obstacles, even with those? Well, probably the most significant one was one that was created by a district manager in Southern California. And I'll use the broom as the analogy again. You know, her job, her goals were to 
to grow her people, to help them grow as professionals and to grow the business. And so she had this idea about a product and she called me up one day and she said, can you come down and visit me? I said, well, I have to be down in Southern California a couple of weeks. I'll stop by on this day. And we met and she took me on a tour of some of our competitor stores. And one of our competitor stores, she bought me a beverage and she said, you know, we need a product like this in our stores. So I said, this is a good idea. And I looked at the price point. You know, she said, I think we could sell 30 drinks a day of this particular product. So I said, really? So I took the idea back to Seattle and I wasn't in charge of product development. The head of marketing was, and, and I presented it to the head of marketing and his team and they all rejected. They said, we're not in that business. We're going to, we only sell coffee. And I pushed a little bit, but he said, no, we're not going to do that. And so I let it go. And I, I called Dina up. Her name was Dina Campion. And I called her up and I said, Dina, you're not going to like this answer, but there's no support for that product at this time. Let's give it about six months and we'll come back after it. Well, about three weeks later, she called me again. And it was before you call her ID. So I, you know, I might not have picked up the phone if I would have known she was calling me again because I would have known what she wanted. Sure enough, she said, Howard, can you come down again? I want something I want to show you. I said, Dina, what's it about? Well, she says, we've been working on this beverage idea. And I said, Dina, you're trying to get me fired. She said, Howard, please come visit me again. I really want to show you this. So I said, I, I'm not going to make a special trip, but I have to be down there in about a month. I'll stop by. So I stopped by and she said, go sit down in one of the chairs. And she brought me these three little sample cups. And I said, Dina, this tastes remarkably like that beverage we bought in the other, in the competitor store. And I said, what are you trying to do here? She said, please let us try this. I'm telling you that people are coming in and walking out every day because we don't have something like this. So it's one of those times in everybody's career that you got to make a decision that might go against the flow of the business. Somebody might have told you no, but you do it anyway because you think it's the right thing to do. So I took a deep breath and I said, okay, you can try it, but do not tell a soul. So she figured out how to do it. She brought it into the stores and not only did it sell 30 drinks a day, but by the second week, we were, we were selling 50 drinks a day. By the third week, it was 70 drinks a day. This was going to be huge. I was thinking, my Howard, you are a genius. Wait till you take this back to the Seattle. So I invited Dean and her team to come up and she brought the sample cups and the, and the equipment to make the beverage and everything. And I had everybody at the, in the office again, sit down in a meeting room. And this time I invited Howard Schultz. So she brought in the sample cups and the head of marketing got up and he walked in front of me. He said, Bihar, I told you we weren't going to do this. And he looked at Howard Schultz and he said, you tell Bihar, okay, to stop this. We're not doing this. And I looked at Howard. I said, give me 90 days. If you don't like it in 90 days, we'll get rid of it. Well, I've been in retail my whole life. I know if something's selling good, it never goes away. So we got 90 days and Dina and her broom. Remember this, Gina got to choose this broom. It was the beverage. It was the analogy for the broom. So that product went in. And what do you think the product was? I don't know. It was Frappuccino. Oh, phenomenal. Yeah, Frappuccino became 20% of Starbucks sales at one time. It became a $4 billion business, both in fresh made in stores and the bottled beverage. So you never know where the idea is going to come from. And you got to be willing to listen to everybody. And sometimes you got to break the rules. As long as you don't poison somebody. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I love that story, Howard, because it just shows that, like you say, close to the action, people can see 
what the trends are before people in the boardrooms can see what the trends are. And they come up with really great ideas and with the right support, it can happen. So you almost started your own, what I would call, you had your R&D thing going on in its own little cell. And then after you prove the concept, then you could kind of scale it and make it go farther uh, in the organization. So I love that. You have to take some risks, break some rules, and uh, kind of keep it hidden for a while till it could <laughs> grow to the right level. Well, the point is, I think as a leader, you got to be willing to take the risk for your people. So I wasn't going to, if it didn't work, it wasn't going to be Dina's fault. It wasn't going to be mine. I owned it, even if it was her idea. If you think in life of all things, particularly in the industries that I've been in, I'm, this is a post-it note, right? This post-it note came from a failure at 3M. There are three, two guys were trying to figure out a glue and they figured out this glue, but it wouldn't stick. And somebody said, I wonder what we could do with this. That's where post-it notes came from. At McDonald's, the breakfast sandwich, the egg McMuffin, that came from franchisee. Ideas come from the people that are doing the work. You as a leader, you don't need to have the ideas. Let your people have the ideas and you help them implement the ideas. And if it doesn't work, so what? So you give the credit when it doesn't work, when it works, and you take the blame when it doesn't work. It's really phenomenal. So that's one of the examples. Give us another example of an innovation where you had to kind of put your neck out there or maybe start it small somewhere, just like you did with this one. Well, I'll give you an example of an innovation that failed. Ah, okay. Have lots of failures along the way, no matter how innovative you are. So we created a product called Mazagran. And we thought it was going to be the best thing since sliced bread. It was a joint venture with Pepsi. And basically what it was was a coffee cola, like a Coca-Cola only made with coffee flavor. So we did all the research. We spent a ton of money on research. And we had this beautiful bottle. It was almost like a crystal bottle. And actually the name came from the French Foreign Legion. There used to be a naturally carbonated water in Africa that the French Foreign Legion would drink to cool themselves off. And they started mixing it with coffee. And so they loved it. And so we created it for ourselves. And we got it out there. Within three months, it caved in on itself. Everybody hated it. Nobody liked it. It didn't work. But that led us to bottled Frappuccino. So a great failure led us to an, a product that had became really successful. Without that failure of Mazagran in that bottle, we probably would have never created bottle Frappuccino. So, you know, I still, to this day, I have a, a bottle of Mazagran encased in that plastic on my in my office uh, to remind myself from great failure can come great success. I love that because basically nothing's wasted. You have some learning that from that experience that you can apply to the next experience. I think that's a great way to walk through life and to think about the experiences that we're having at life. Because basically when you have that mindset, there's no reason to fear anything because every experiment is going to have value one way or another. If it's not illegal, immoral, or unethical, and as I say, you're not going to poison somebody, you can try it. Exactly, exactly. I love those guardrails. We need those as well. So at this stage right now at Starbucks, we know that there's an incoming CEO who's just getting launched, Laxman Arasman. What would you say to him, you know, that's important success factors as he continues to lead at Starbucks at this stage? Well, nothing has changed. 
it's still about the people. There's 35,000 stores around the world. You know, I don't know how many billions they do or anymore. I don't keep track of it, but it's still about the people. Nothing has changed. I don't care how big it goes, it gets, and how many people we have. Everybody has to care, and that means you have to care about them first. That's where it starts and ends, really. If a leadership truly cares about the people and the people know it, and they don't hear just the words, but they see it in see it in the actions that leadership takes because every leader says I care, right? But the leaders that act on that caring are the ones that are truly successful. People know they care because they do things that show it. And so my advice to lax is to stay with it. That's what got you to the party. That's what keep you at the party. And, you know, you just keep going with that. And that means you got to listen. You not only listen, but you act on the, on the feedback that you're getting. And you can't be afraid to get feedback that sometimes it hurts. It does. Sometimes, you know, the criticism hurts. And But you got to be able to, you know, look the other way and, and hear what they're saying and acknowledge it. And when you do that, then people know that you're with them. Yeah, very important. Listen, acknowledge, and then go with some new directions sometimes, you know, so people know that you really were listening. They can see their ideas taking effect in the organization. That's good advice. That's sound advice for any leader out there. So not only Laxman, but others as well, wherever they're leading in their organizations and in their companies. So when you think back over your career, Howard, and I mean, even beyond Starbucks, all the places where you've been, what would you say have been some of your most profound lessons that you've learned and maybe something you haven't said just yet? Well, you know, you learn all the way through your life. And I've been fortunate enough to have all kinds of mentors in my life. But one was a mentor that didn't report to me. And it was a particular incident that happened when I was 27 years old. And it stuck with me all these years. That's 50 years it stayed with me. A young woman that reported to me came into my office one day, tears coming down her face, crying uncontrollably. And I was sitting across the table from her. And I had a box of Kleenex. And I got that box of Kleenex. And I came around and I patted her on the shoulder. I said, don't worry, it'll be okay. And handed her the Kleenex. She came out of her chair mad at me. She, I mean, she yelled at me. And I'm thinking to myself, what did I just do? I was trying to be kind. And it was the first time I realized that people don't just cry because they're sad. Sometimes they cry because they're mad. And she didn't want to be condescending to. She was coming in because she was mad about something. And it taught me a valuable lesson. Ask questions before you take action. People do different things. So just because somebody's crying doesn't mean they're mad, doesn't mean they're sad. Ask the question, what's going on with you? What can I do? Why are you feeling the way you're feeling? And then if it needs Kleenex, fine, you can give the Kleenex, but not before you know the answer. That's a really important lesson, um, Howard, because it's going beyond assumptions. Sometimes we assume things that aren't correct. And you're saying explore, find out what's really going on. And so often in business today, people are actually implementing solutions before they really know what the problem is that they're trying to solve. Yeah, because leaders want to provide solutions. It's like a parent. I want to give you the answers, but great parents don't give the answers. They give an ear, right? It's just like great bosses don't give the answers. They give an ear. And so, you know, the same things that we're talking about here about business apply at home. Human beings are human beings. 
and that we respond to the same things kind of in similar ways, no matter whether it's home or whether it's at work. Well, that just brings me to another subject, which is kind of like a combination of home and work. We're in a season right now where there are a lot of employees wanting to work from home or at least wanting to have more of a hybrid solution instead of being in the office 24-7. And there are leaders who are just adamantly opposed, not because they're in a business where you really have to be there in person. There are some businesses, of course, like that, or roles in businesses where you have to be there. So for those leaders who may be, um, let's say, not as readily open to embrace the hybrid work place concept, how would you advise them? What could they do to gain more perspective at this point? Well, the first thing not to do is say, I want you to be here because just because I want you here. That's not an answer. If you have, you know, a business like Starbucks, which is a high touch business, there are some people that work in the Starbucks support center that work in accounting, work in tech, that are doing coding. They don't necessarily have to be there. But I will have to say that an organization that has high touch, like we have in our stores, sometimes you've got to be together because, you know, particularly in marketing and in the creative aspects, because bouncing ideas off of people in person is a lot different than doing it, you know, online. But you have to be willing to be flexible. It will get to where it needs to be. You know, the world changes. And we're in one of those times. We never had Zoom. Oh, Zoom is so easy now. We can have this conversation like we're right with each other. But we never had those tools. Well, we now have great tools and they're getting better and better. So allow those tools to take hold and ask your people, talk to them and explain to them really what, what it is you want. If it's all it is is about control, that's not going to work. It's got to be much more meaningful than that. It has to add to the purpose, the greater purpose of the organization. And people will come along with it. And I can understand. I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I like being home and doing my work, you know, and petting my dogs when I want to do it. So why wouldn't everybody else like it? And it, it will come to where the natural level is supposed to be. Let it be and let your people come towards it. Don't try to force it. I love that. I love that because you're you're acknowledging that there really are some advantages to working from home, and this is probably what they like. And so you can find out a little bit more about that. And then if you really want them to be there, give them the reason, give them the deeper purpose. It can't, like you said, just be about control. If there's a team building or team interaction reason, be able to articulate that. And this is where I think what you're talking about sort of like relates to the values part of leadership that you were saying um, earlier too, leading with the values. Exactly. You know, it's so interesting to me, all the tech firms are going through all these big layoffs right now. You know, you know what it takes to get into a place like Google or Apple or those, you probably have to go through five or six interviews and you got to meet with everybody. And right, so you're meeting in person. They want to meet you in person. So you're there in the office and you're talking. And yet when they start to lay off people, they send out a text or an email. What is that? Shouldn't you love them as much going out of the organization as you loved them coming in the organization? If you truly believe in high touch, you want your people in the office, then show them that you're willing to do that too. You're willing to do the high touch when their services are no longer needed. It's an interesting uh, dichotomy I find right now. Yeah, you're talking about being consistent A to Z, you know, not just on this part. Yeah, throughout the whole process. 
you know, Howard, you come from an entrepreneurial business family yourself. And tell us a little bit about what you learned growing up in an entrepreneurial family and how that prepared you to show up powerfully in business all these years. Well, I had, you know, a father that had a small mom and pop grocery store, and he was 50 when I was born. He was an immigrant. My mother was an immigrant, and they saved their pennies, nickels, and dimes and opened up the store. We never had much, but we always had food. We always had food on the table. But I'd watch my dad get up at 4 o'clock every morning, go down to Produce Row in Seattle, pick up his fruit and produce, bring it back to the store, clean it up, and open his store at 8 o'clock. And in those days, he'd close the store at 6 o'clock. But I'd watch him come home at night. He'd put all his bills out on his, he had a little desk at home so he could pay his bills. He would keep his, have his accounting there. I'd watch when he ran, did advertisements in the local newspaper. I'd watch when he hired somebody new to come into the store. So I had this experience of what it took to run a small business. And I watched how he dealt with his customers. They weren't just his customers. They were his neighbors and his friends. You know, in those days, they had charge accounts. He had a charge account for every customer. I used to go there after school every day, and I was standing up by the register, and he was ringing a customer up. This was in the days before electronic crash registers. It was a crank, and I still have that in my office, the crank. And so he'd push the 10, there was 10 buttons across, 10 buttons down. He'd put the buttons in, pull the crank, and go bing. And then he'd do it again, bing, you know. And so, and then a tape would come out. He would take that tape, and he'd clip it to the charge account, and the customer would walk out. Well, one day, I was standing up by the counter. I was ringing a customer up, and he said, Howard, would you go get me some bananas or strawberries? I can't even remember anymore what it was. But so I did, and I brought them up, and he took them, and he put them in the bag, and the customer walked out. Well, I was old enough to recognize that he hadn't rung them up on his cash register. He said, Dad, you forgot to ring those up. And he just looked at me, and he said, Howard, not everything in life do you need to get paid for. I happen to know these are not just our customers, but they're our neighbors and our friends. And I happen to know they're struggling right now and they can't afford to buy fresh fruit. So it's just my way of helping them out. They they weren't customers. They were human beings that he was helping out. You know, I didn't understand that lesson until much later on in life when I remembered and I remember what he did. Not everything we do in life do we need to get paid for or rewarded for or recognized for. We do things because it's the right thing to do. And so that's informed me through the rest of my life. And it was, I think, it was seminal in terms of how I treated people when I got into leadership positions. It's how I treated them. I didn't treat them as employees. I treated them as human beings. And that's how I got interested in servant leadership. Is that the primary role of servant leadership is understand that you treat them as human beings first. You're there to serve them before they serve you. Oh, that is such a profound lesson. Your father could have sat down and taught you this as a rule. He could have sat down and said, this is what you do. He lived it in front of you. He showed you what this looks like to treat people like human beings and to care about their circumstances and to know about the circumstances and where they might be struggling. And look, you still remember that story to this day. That's how I went to work at Starbucks, because I said I don't need to be paid for that week. I can be willing to give. Yeah, thanks for bringing that around full circle. You're right. If all of those values he taught you, you were practicing even in that act as well. It shows your character. It shows what you believe in, what you care about. And so the company, they can interview you all they want, but what you do speaks volumes. And so that's a great, great example. Thank you for that story. No matter what our backgrounds, we can learn 
from our parents. We can learn from our home situation. We can learn from the exposures that we had, including sometimes what not to do. And in your case, this is a good story about what to do, which is wonderful. So Howard, I want to turn our attention a little bit to your books. You have two books. There's this one here. It's not about the coffee. And you've already told us now what it's really about. And then your other book, The Magic Cup. Tell us about these two books. Who are they for? What will people get out of reading these books? It's Not About the Coffee is basically a book about my uh, leadership, my life and leadership. And you can see it's a subtitle says, Lessons on Pretty People First from a Life at Starbucks. I didn't say from a career at Starbucks. I said purposely from a life at Starbucks because it was part of my life. It wasn't a job. And that's how I treated it. And so it's full of stories about the lessons learned in leadership and things that I think we need to do. And it, its primary lesson is learning to understand who you are because that's where everything begins and ends. Act and figuring out what your values are and then acting on those values. The second book, it's The Magic Cup, is a book that actually was born out of anger, interestingly enough. When I started thinking about it, it was when Starbucks went through, I was on the board and Starbucks in 2007, 2008, went through a time where we had to lay off people and I disagreed with it. I thought we shouldn't do it. And it was, I actually resigned from the board over it. The anger went away, but the, but the idea stayed and it, it's fiction, but it's kind of where Harry Potter meets business. It's about a leader that comes in when a company is struggling and the fear that's in the organization and how he learns to listen to his team and to make things happen. It's a fun little story. It's, uh, I think the first book is, is probably more applicable to probably your group. But if you want a fun little fiction story about leadership, it's interesting. So dialing back in terms of the inspiration for the Magic Cup, and you didn't really believe that layoffs should happen. What did you really think should happen at that time? Well, I wasn't against all layoffs. So we were going to, we were closing a bunch of stores. So we were going to lay people off. But, you know, you have a team of people that have been there a long time, and all of a sudden you're letting those people that have the history of the organization in their hearts and in their souls. And we weren't losing money. We still had plenty of cash flow, and we were doing fine. But And so to save a few bucks, well, it was a lot of money, but, but to save a few bucks, and then we ended up replacing all those people within a year. We didn't have the patience. I would have much rather said to everybody, look, everybody has to take a 5 or 10% decrease in our pay for a while so we can hang on to the people that we have. I think that would have been much more effective. There were lots of companies that were struggling under the same thing. A company that I know very well, a company called Costco, which is headquartered in Seattle. They didn't have any layoffs even during the same time and their business was going down. So I think that, you know, sometimes leaders are too quick on the draw. You want to get the answer done quickly and, and you want to make sure that your profits stay up. Sometimes you got to give up profits on a temporary basis. And so that's where it came from. And I learned a lot from it. You know, I understand. I mean, I'm not naive. I know that layoffs happen and I've had to do some myself, but, you know, try to do everything else first. I love that. So there are more creative solutions, even to financial challenges, business challenges, and don't just do what's easy first, because it's really not easy in the long run to lose dedicated people who have the heart and soul of the business in their DNA. Exactly. 
Yeah, I love that. That is phenomenal. People can take a lesson from that right now in terms of, you know, when you're faced with something difficult, be willing to experience the short-term dip, you know, in your business. For sure. I've done that myself. So I understand what's involved in that because I knew I had good people on my team who I didn't want to lose. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to eat this a little bit to keep these people through this downturn because we're going to, we're going to come up out of it. And so that's a, a real inspired way to lead. And then all my people are still with me too. So that's layoffs break trust and particularly layoffs break trust when you're not only doing once, but you do them, do them, do them, do them. And you're seeing companies do that right now, you know, because people are sitting around waiting for the next ball to drop. Is it going to be me next? How productive do you think they are during that time? And even if they stay, now all of a sudden they got eyes behind their head wondering, could it happen to me next? So when somebody comes along and says, you know, I've got a better job for you, they're going to be more inclined to, to listen to that stuff. So, you know, you don't always gain what you think you're going to gain because you have layoffs. You know, I'm thinking about somebody I know whose company had been laying off a lot of people. And so they didn't feel safe. And so what they did is they removed everything personal out of their office so that if they ended up being one of the ones that had to put all their stuff in a box and walk out, it wouldn't take them very long to do it. They had no personal pictures up anymore. Everything was gone. So there's a loss there. If you have people worried and thinking about, I could be next. Exactly. So Howard, what is next for you? Now, I know that you're retired and <laughs> you're in the, these these golden years at this stage. What are you doing at this time in your life? Why is that important what you're doing? And what's the rest of the legacy that you're leaving? And I say the rest of because I believe we live our legacy as we go along and you certainly have done that. Well, nothing's changed for me. Uh, my mission in life is every day I want to nurture and inspire the human spirit, beginning with myself first and then for others. That I've had for 30 years, that mission. I live by my values, and that hasn't changed. And I'm trying to change how people think about leadership, how they think about living a life. I'm trying to get people to understand that if you don't, that old saying, if you don't know where you're going, any path will get you there. Try to live your life with intention. You know, what are you trying to leave behind? You don't want to wake up at my age at 78 and look back at all those years and say, what the hell happened? You want to be, you know, did I get everything done I wanted to get done? Did I achieve every goal I set? No, I didn't. But I can honestly look back at my life and say, you know, I've lived my life the way I wanted to lead it. And my goals are still the same as to serve others. That's really great, 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 great wisdom. Sometimes the venues change and how we live out that uh, mission or purpose. However, the purpose is still there and what you're living for is still in place. So thank you for sharing that um, with us. What additional words of wisdom, because you've said a lot already in terms of words of wisdom. So what additional words of wisdom would you like to leave for my community of executive business leaders? Everybody in your organization should know what you stand for. And it should be honest, open, authentic, and vulnerable. And people know when you're faking it. So don't fake it. You know, tell them how you're feeling. Tell them what's going on in your business. You got to be willing to share the good, the bad, and the ugly with your people because they'll help you when you're struggling. But many leaders are afraid of doing that. And I just think at the end of the day, you got to 
put it all out there. You got to be honest and open. And when you're that way, that's the way they're going to be with you. Yeah, it also calms them down a little bit because they can feel in the ether in the air that something is not quite right, even if you don't tell them exactly what it is. And so there's that sense of not being safe in the workplace when there's not the authenticity. However, if you share in the way that you're talking about, they say, oh, okay, I can relax now because I, I know what's going on. And I know that if there's anything important happening, then my leader's going to come and offer a state, I call it the state of the business, what's really happening, you know, around here. So Howard, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for being here with me. Thank you for being my special guest. I am sure that people have heard some nuggets of wisdom today about taking risks and being prepared to live by their values and putting people first and really investing in people and pouring into people. So I thank you for all of those lessons that you shared with us today. Dr. Karen, thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure and my delight. And so we will close today with some scripture verses, and these come from Deuteronomy, the eighth chapter starting with verse 6. This is all about how God was taking care of his people, Israel, as they were entering the promised land. And so let's hear what he says here about this. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. So what I want to say about this is that God is the model and the pattern for how to be good to his people. And this is a picture of it. Take that away today as you envision how you can be good and even better to the people who serve you in the workplace. Have a blessed day. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.